listening to the Boiler Room at ACR. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Alright, this is going to be Boiler Room 165 on ACR. Here we go. to the show this is boiler room created produced and presented by some guy whose call sign is hesher that's me out here in central texas boiler room is here yet again to ensure that our fine listeners are not being hoodwinked by common mainstream media chicanery sleight of hand illusion and well straight up propaganda hey quick housekeeping if you missed it if you haven't caught it yet Check out the Media on Trial Sunday Wire podcast and video. It's up at UK Column. It's at 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Go check it out if you missed it. It was excellent. Also, make sure you automatically receive all your Boiler Room episodes, including special events like this one that occur in our non-regular time slot. Do this by following Boiler Room on iTunes Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and of course at Spreaker.com. Just search for Boiler Room on any of those platforms. Favorite it, like it, click notifications, and automatically download so as to never miss an episode. All right. Alternate Current Radio is listener-supported. That's right. We are a listener-supported radio endeavor. So if you find our live shows, podcasts, 24-7 live stream, music shows, talk shows, in-house presentations, and simulcasted shows of value, please share them around your social media feeds. And if you're so inclined, if you feel the moral imperative, if you love the blend of entertainment, information, analysis, and reporting here in the Boiler Room, as well as among the associated talk and music shows here at ACR, then please consider supporting this platform. You can find out how at alternatecurrentradio.com forward slash donate. All right, let's get right into it. On the show tonight, we've got an international cross-section of the ACR Brain Trust. It's challenging to find a time slot for a show like this since we're working with Texas, UK, and South Korea time zones. Some of us are up late. Some of us are up early, and some are smack dab in the middle of the dinner and family time hours, but that's how we roll over here. So, let's get everyone introduced. We're going to start out 
with this guy. He's a brain trust ultra. He contributes at Soul of the East, and he's a longtime Boiler Room member. Mr. Daniel Spaulding, welcome back to the Boiler Room once again. Daniel, it's great to have you back on the line. How are you? Good to hear your voice again. Yes, it's been too long. I'm really glad we got you on the show tonight. Let's see here. Oh, man, I forgot to put your music on there. Oh, well, I'll do it afterwards. How about that? Okay, Daniel, hang back, and uh, we'll get the next guy introduced, and we'll get into some stuff here. All right, up next, he's the proprietor of 21st Century Wire and the host of the Sunday Wire radio show, Mr. Patrick Henningsen. Welcome back to the Boiler Room. How are you? I'm great, Hesh. I'm great. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. I'm really excited to have you guys on the line. You're two of the uh, more difficult guys to reach just because of our uh, time zone challenges. So I'm really happy to have you guys both here. Uh, Great to be here. Great to be live on the Boiler Room. Once again. Yes. Okay. So we're calling a special meeting of the Boiler Room. Uh, We're going to talk two topics tonight. We're going to talk Trump North Korea and Trump Russia. We haven't done an update on either of these in a while. And you two gentlemen, I think, are the perfect additions to have this discussion tonight. So uh, what do you guys think? Let's start with Trump North Korea. I'm going to let Daniel kick this one off. Daniel, what's going on here, man? There was uh, there was going to be a meeting. Then there wasn't going to be a meeting. Now there is again. Uh, there's so much to talk about with regards to this, and you're our man in South Korea, so you're closest to this. Uh, I'm curious to get your take on what is going on here with this big story. This is a big story. Well, yeah, Trump, you know, keeps me updated about it all the time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't have any, you know, special information or anything, so I want to make that clear, but, uh, from you know, from, from what I know, from from what you guys probably know as well, is yeah, um, starting uh, I guess back in the, the the winter of this year, uh, relations started to thaw between at first South Korea and North Korea. Um, the the current Korean president uh, Moon Jae-in is uh, ran as someone who wanted to you know reconcile with North Korea his. Previous, you know, the previous president was a hardliner, not someone interested in talking. But Moon, with uh, his his family, his parents actually come from North Korea, though although he was born in South Korea. Uh, he's wanted. This is something he's wanted to do, uh, and I guess finally with the the Olympics during the the, the Pyeongchang Olympics back in was that February, I believe. Um, he invited. The North Koreans to send a delegation. They did some cultural exchanges, and you know that started things on a good trajectory. I guess uh, a big change from last year when Trump and the North Korean leader were, you know, duking it out over Twitter and these kinds of forums <laughs> with uh, calling each other names and fire and fury and all this kind of uh, bombastic rhetoric and such. So we've come a long way from from that. I guess back in back in late of last year. Um, anyways, so, uh, Kim and Trump, excuse me, Kim and Moon, uh, had their own summit, uh, sorry for the motorbike in the back, Kim and Moon had their own summit, uh, in the DMZ, uh, back in, oh, my, my dates are eluding me now, back in April, I think, uh, late March, early April, uh, and Kim, 
told the South Koreans that he wanted to have a, a summit with Trump in person, not just behind-the-scenes negotiations or diplomats and all this kind of stuff. And this, the South Koreans conveyed this message to Trump, and he, I guess, immediately uh, accepted it, that he, he was willing to do this, he was interested in doing this. Um, and this summit got started uh, to be set up. Uh, Pompeo, the, the current Secretary of State, seems to have been an, uh, someone, an eager participant in it, despite his hard line on some other issues. He seems, uh, to his credit, he seems very enthusiastic about this, this as well, diplomacy. Um, he went to Pyongyang, etc. Um, so, uh, summit became the big thing, but then... Uh, as you mentioned, it got cancelled. Uh, Trump cancelled it uh, after some, again, some heated rhetoric between North Korea and and the White House, c- caused by uh, the big the uh, the arch neocon John Bolton, who is someone who does not want to negotiate, who's who has a kind of all or nothing attitude towards North Korea, um, and he said something that upset the he. he he told the North Koreans that they could have the Libyan model, and as I'm sure our listeners know, the Libyan model ends with your the leader uh, being dragged through the street by uh, uh, terrorists and, and stuff like that. Um, so that upset the North Koreans, and they kind of uh, said some, understandably, <coughs> excuse me, understandably said some nasty things about Bolton uh, and about the White House and Trump politely told them that uh he was gonna to, you know cancel the meeting because of this um you know he had to cover for bolton essentially uh but then moon jae-in uh, again met with kim met with trump uh got things back on track i guess bolton was uh both trump and pompeo pretty much slapped down bolton told him to he needs to to back off and in fact uh, I guess the other day, earlier this week, um, Kim Yong-chol, who's the vice chairman of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, so a very high-ranking person from North Korea, uh, came to the White House and delivered a message and met with Trump and Pompeo, and Bolton was uh, very obviously absent from this meeting, even though he's the national security advisor. So... I mean, at this point from that, you know, I guess that's a kind of the, the narrative in a nutshell. I guess they've decided on the summit will be held at some hotel in Singapore next week, so on June 12th. So it's just a few days away, and everything at this point seems on track um, as far as the diplomacy aspect goes. But, you know, there's a lot of other loose ends and, and things to to be tied up, and who knows where things will go at this point, because... Both countries, to be fair, don't have a good history of always negotiating in good faith, so we'll see. Yeah, this is uh, this is really interesting. Patrick, I noticed that this is happening um, very near the, the Bilderberg uh, time frame. I don't know that there's any connection there, but uh, a lot of big stuff going on here in uh, June of 2018. Yeah, good point, uh, Hesher. So it's kind of the dates are competing a bit, so... Uh, Bilderberg, as as you know, and as your guests in the past, uh, I think you've had Mark Anderson on and other people to explain the significance of the Bilderberg in terms of rolling out the transatlantic agenda, 
So this is when all the sort of captains of industry, the heads of corporate Silicon Valley, banking, finance, uh, and sort of uh, uh, plutocrats and uh, other oligarchs and political operatives from, from the United States, from Canada, from Mexico, come and meet their Western European counterparts and decide uh, how the world's going to be managed for the next uh, 12 months and to, to ensure that they're on track with the uh, the agenda from the previous year. So, uh, but, so this, this is Trump's, I mean, I, I would say, I don't know if Daniel will agree with me on this, but, you know, this is Trump's first kind of real, his own authentic adroit, I would say use the word adroit, um, move, um, where he's not being pushed into it maybe, or stumbling or bumbling, uh, or it's not too ultra complex in the sense of like the quagmire that was inherited in the Middle East, uh, in Syria, for instance, uh, and the other places. And the Iran situation is also an inherited situation for this administration. But this North Korea detente seems to me like it's it's one of the sort of the, the first, maybe, maybe the only um, authentic kind of... Uh, Reprochement from this White House, where he, something positive could potentially happen out of this historically uh, to so de-escalate, maybe sign a peace treaty between uh, the North and South Koreans. Uh, you know, down the road, potential unification. These are all things that his name will be attached to if anything is uh, successful here. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. Do you agree with me, Dan? That, that, that this is kind of what his one of the only sort of adroit moves that really has his stamp on it rather than, you know, sort of all the legacy baggage of all the other geopolitical situations. Yeah, I I would agree, though. I I would qualify it with that. This this has been a sort of a decades-long problem that's been sort of simmering. Um, But, yeah, Trump certainly seems to be the most recent president who's willing to proactively deal with it and not just kind of... um, tolerate or, or endure the status quo, which Obama and Bush both were happy to maintain. Um, I do think Moon Jae-in, the, the, the South Korean president, deserves a lot of credit as well. He's been the kind of driving force, and he's been quite willing to, you know, even to the point of flattering, you know, needlessly flattering Trump to keep him on, on his side to kind of get this done. Um, so I think, yes, I, I I would agree with what you said, and I would throw Moon Jae-in in there as well, that he's, you know, the, the other the other wing on this bird. Absolutely. I, I think um, if you look at Moon's camp, he ran on this is a campaign issue. So really, he's following through with his campaign uh, promises. This is ostensibly what a lot of South Koreans elected him, or there's probably a, a fairly decent contingent that would have elected him on this issue, right? So... So he's in a way similar to Trump in that this is a really important thing for Trump to follow through on his campaign promises. Certainly this is something that Trump supporters are, are you know, constantly reinforcing. This is a president that's going to do what he says, even if it's uh, not not always the best uh, policies. Um, Jerusalem uh, comes to mind. Trump also ran on his willingness to negotiate with North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not just in a general. He he specifically said he would meet with Kim. He's he he said this during his campaign. So yeah, I mean, he's both Moon and Kim. Excuse me, both Moon and Trump. That's too many names to remember here. Uh, both Moon and Trump are following through on campaign rhetoric as far as this is concerned. And so the the the, the fly in the ointment, as it were, 
arrived uh, at the end of April uh, in the form of a walrus, uh, a rare sort of (laughs) creature that sort of managed to uh, slither into the White House somehow. I don't know. This is a prehistoric walrus that has been uh, cited decades ago in other administrations. His name is John Bolton. So Bolton sort of appears on the scene, and all of a sudden that's when things sort of go haywire. Um, what, I mean, the timing of that, Daniel, was so you know, people will look at that, Dan, and say, this is the deep state's guy uh, who has now entered the situation to sort of destroy or be a sort of a wrecking ball for any sort of constructive uh, uh, things that are going on and maybe to accelerate any sort of malicious agendas um, like like dumping the Iran nuclear deal uh, as as was you know, announced just as Bolton sort of had, um, you know, burrowed in there like a tick uh, into the White House. But, I mean, so, so CNN's now basically even backing off Bolton's, you know, you're saying Bolton sidelined, sidelined as Trump readies for North Korea. So even CNN's picking up on this um, uh, sort of division, as it were, uh, in terms of the uh, Trump foreign policy advisory section and uh so this is interesting i mean so so is is bolton uh is bolton being brushed back by uh, a, a faction in the white house or is this just going to be an ongoing tug of war i mean again i can only you know both of us i guess can only go on what what's uh, information is publicly available but it does seem that from what i understand uh pompeo is not a big fan of bolton and there is a, some degree of rivalry between them and the north korean thing is pompeo's baby so he he wants to keep bolton as far away as possible uh, and that's not to say pompeo is a, is a softy or anything either he's he's you know he's a typical republican on foreign policy which is which means he's pretty awful generally but at least on this issue he seems to be acting with with a great deal of sanity and reason um but yeah, Bolton. I, I'm still trying to figure out what Trump saw in Bolton and why he brought him on and gave him such a prominent role. What he's expecting from him, because Bolton, you know, Trump. Trump is no pacifist, granted, but he generally. Uh, I mean, he spent a lot of time bashing neocons, attacking interventionism. You know, it's stupid. It's expensive. It's you know, it's no good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then he brings on a guy like Bolton, who's who is the sort of incarnation of everything Trump ran against on in, in terms of foreign policy? I mean, Bolton is like a the neocons neocon, I and mean, he's he's pretty hardcore. So I'm I'm still trying to figure out why he brought him on. Uh, some people said it was to sort of clean out the the National Security Agency, you know, the committee or whatever it's called to you know get rid of Obama people that are in there. I don't know if that's what he saw him as as a tool to do that yeah it's hard to say i just it's confusing uh but my my hope is that bolton goes the way of his two predecessors and winds up looking for a new job in the near future because uh, that libya comment was a deliberate act of sabotage against uh trump and pompeo's uh, attempt to to set up this summit no, definitely. That, that that's the worst, the worst thing you could say. And it was. It's not only that. You know, there's uh, there's multiple uh, moving parts in this picture that 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 extend beyond 
the uh, the the Korean Peninsula, and at the same time, this uh, issue of the Iran deal has come up, and and that's an international agreement or treaty which effectively uh, the United States is reneging on, um, and so in, in totally politicizing the uh, Iran JCPO deal in terms of um, oh that was Obama's deal, so therefore a new president and new a new administrations in the White House, therefore we have to dump it. So so if you if you think about the the message that the U.S. is sending out to the world that, you know, uh, Gaddafi uh, totally complied with, you know, all these sort of dictates and was then, you know, allowed in back into the sort of uh, globalist uh, fold there for a few years, seven years or something like that. And then what happened, uh, he was being dragged through the streets seven years later um, uh, uh, off the back of a truck. Uh, so that's one message that's sent out to the world, which is that if you play ball with the United States and, and their, the international um, rules-based order, that you will end up being dragged through the streets of your hometown uh, on the back of a Toyota truck. And then you look at the situation in North Korea, uh, a peace summit had been organized, and all of a sudden, you know, immediately uh, the rug's being pulled out from under it back in uh, you know, late April, early May. And so that's sending out another message. Um, and then the Iran deal backing out of that. So basically the, the, the message the, uh, in terms of optics is that you can't do any business with the United States because you don't know what they're going to do. And specifically this administration, uh, the Trump administration, is sort of all over the place um, on these two deals. That's what that's what the sort of optics are globally. I can say from Europe, that's definitely how people are looking at it, and certainly from from the Middle East. So what it does is it makes it a really difficult here. Here is yeah, here, yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Say here as well. The 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 Iran deal. You know, it, it makes it, it a lot of you know some of the 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 people I spoke to here. It was very confusing to them because they said it does send a very bad message to North Korea that Washington cannot be trusted. You know that oh we'll make a deal with you and and even if Trump keeps it oh that means the next president if they don't like Trump or they don't like his policies that just as they can sabotage it or or just throw it overboard and as you as you said there you know these countries whether it's you know as you went Libya model Iran deal model whatever the message is Washington is going to you know subject these different policies to partisan politics and toss them overboard when it doesn't serve a particular president's purpose. I think you could extend that analysis to the uh, U.S. embassy in East Jerusalem as well, because that was that's an international agreement. You know, successive UN resolutions, uh, you know, identifying uh, uh, Jerusalem as a sort of neutral international area, not to be used in any political uh, fashion, and certainly not to be declared as the capital of Israel. Uh, and so, the United States has moved with that embassy in East Jerusalem, although previous Congress, Congress, congressional um, uh, motions and, and House resolutions have wanted that, but it never been acted upon by the last four presidents because it was just seen as a bridge too far uh, to actually go, go ahead and do it. And then here Trump's gone ahead and done it. And so that's another, so that's more of a slight against the sort of international uh, community. And then 
that slight extends into the UN Security Council. You see how Nikki Haley is uh, uh, the other. <laughs> did you did you guys? Uh, I'm going off topic here, but Nikki Haley uh, put forward a UN Security Council resolution. I believe it was like two days ago, and she drafted it, basically blaming Hamas for all the dead Palestinian unarmed protesters. Uh, so no blame on Israel, of course. It wasn't their fault. It was Hamas's fault. Uh, and they're all Hamas uh, operatives, even the uh, the women and teenagers, uh, apparently. The students were all Hamas unarmed, according to Nikki Haley. She put that to a vote on the U.N. Security Council floor. And guess how many votes she got? I don't have to guess, Patrick. I Two, saw it. Probably just U.S. and Israel. <laughs> well, it, well, I don't think Israel's on, Israel's not on the Security Council. Oh, the Security Council. Yeah, it wasn't so, a general. So you're almost right, yeah. Daniel. She did get one vote, which yeah. was her own vote. She So yeah. never never before has anybody put forward a resolution that only they, the only vote they got was themselves. It's Patrick, never been yeah, done did, did you see the video of her going around pleading yep. with that the other members to, part, to vote man. for Lewis? That was awesome. (laughs) Literally going around and you could see her saying, please, just begging anyone to vote with her. It was great. Begging, like groveling to Peru. (laughs) Like, just please, we need a coalition of something. So it's too bad. The uh, usually the, the, the U.S. can count on for coalitions or, you know, the Marshall Islands. Uh, <laughs> the Maldives and uh, you know American Samoa and so you know, that's usually the, the the they're sort of the backing of any U.S. coalition. They can get all these sort of archipelagos, <laughs> but they weren't available for this one. So, but but this kind of shows um, this this transactional uh, uh, nature and this sort of different way of doing business internationally. And Mickey Haley saying we're taking names. She she threatened everybody afterwards we're taking names so you've got that so she's dealing foreign policy on the un side like this then you have john bolton basically sabotaging uh a number of uh, initiatives and i'm i'm not saying he's responsible for sabotaging the iran nuclear deal but um and because trump had made noises through, throughout the campaign that that he was going to basically uh, tear that deal up and so it seems like this is what he's gone and done but it does seem i think uh mcmaster was was in favor of keeping the deal so his removal put bolton in the position to kind of whisper into trump's ear and sort of i guess uh encourage trump to continue down the road he was inclined to go down whereas mcmaster again whatever his other faults was at least somewhat sane on this issue and was just strongly discouraged trump from backing out of the deal as did i think tillerson and and mattis as well but tillerson is gone as well so uh the kind of the people yeah the people who are in favor of keeping the deal are out of the picture and you just have the hardliners like bolton and nikki haley and these people so um i think mattis is kind of your last Again, I use the word very, very loosely, but your last sane person, kind of in in terms of of major players in the in the Trump circle. Yeah, I, I think you're. I'm getting the feeling, Daniel, that uh, John Bolton's uh, installation uh, was 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 really a phone call from from Tel Aviv. Uh, and, or, or or Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. Or Sheldon, yeah, could have been from Macau. Uh, one of those two places. So, uh, <laughs> so, that, so, that, yeah. So you're you're not. I don't. I think that's 
that looks like that's probably one of the main drivers behind because Bolton's going to ensure that basically everything's going to be anti-Iran. It's going to be you know pro 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 hostility in the Middle East. So he he covers that region really well for his uh, his benefactors and the people who are backing him. But but back to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, what was interesting, Daniel, is that when when this meeting was called off, and I can't remember exactly what the reason for that was. Apparently, it was some con- the Trump accused Kim of making some uh, you know aggressive comments or or something like this, which I'm not sure if it really was. Um, but then what it did is it opened the it opened a door between um, the the door was open before, but between Pyongyang and Beijing, and so. Then you see all of a sudden Kim is in Beijing with Xi, and so you just explain to us, Daniel, how important the the the, the appearances are, especially in in Asian politics. Like it doesn't appearances don't mean anything in American politics anymore, unless in European politics. I mean, Tony Blair will be with a dictator one day, and then he'll be bombing him the next. But in in Asia. Appearances and optics really mean something in terms. So you know when Moon and Kim step over the DMZ line and they holding hands, or when Kim goes to meet President Xi uh, in Beijing, that this sends a message out to you know people in those countries and to their electorate and their citizens that something is happening, and so there's some expectation that you know there's going to be something constructive going on. Uh, going forward, a totally different mentality than how we view in our cynical Western lens now our political operatives and leaders. But it, do you, how how significant are those kind of scenes, Daniel? Those those sort of iconic scenes of of leaders coming together that hadn't previously maybe been on such great footing. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly think the the Kim Moon meeting was very uh, a very big show. Um, I mean, a very big in terms of the power of the imagery involved in that. Um, uh, I, I don't know if, if either of you watched it when it happened or saw the, the kind of uh, the highlights of it or whatever, but <clears throat> when they first went there, Kim stepped on the South Korean side and uh, Moon said to him, you know, I said, I hope in the future we can meet on your side of the border. And Kim said to him, how about right now? And they actually stepped across for a few seconds onto the, the North Korean side you know, with all the cameras and stuff. Um, so it was very powerful. Uh, you know, uh, I watched it live and, you know, with, surrounded by several Koreans, it was very kind of, everyone's kind of entranced and it was, it, it's, it, sets the, it set a serious mood that previously a lot of people were kind of indifferent or pessimistic that the situation was going to change. But seeing that stuff really, really inspired a lot more optimism a lot more optimism in the past few weeks, and I think people are slowly moving, Koreans slowly moving in the direction that they think something is going to happen here. Their main worry is not about Kim, it's about Trump, it's about Washington, um, it, which is a fair thing. As you mentioned, you, you, it's kind of hard to know what Trump's going to do, because he can. he's very... Uh, uh, I don't know which, what even the word you want to use, but he kind of can change on a dime if he... On, on very superficial for very superficial reasons but as far as Xi and China go I mean China has been North Korea's main I, 
I don't want to use the word sponsor, but has been their main supporter and economic supporter and from time to time diplomatic supporter over the past, you know, since the, the end of the war. And the, well, again, the that's another issue. The war hasn't even technically ended since the armistice, I guess, in, in 1953. So uh, North Korea kind of is... I think it's wrong to describe North Korea as just a Chinese client state, but certainly they, uh, China is very important to them, and they and North Korea wants to keep China in the loop. And Trump actually has himself said he needed China to get things done with North Korea. He's he really tried to get G's support for these sanctions, um, and he's tried to 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 do that. But I, I think there is the angle that. Generally, the U.S. has been hostile towards North Korea over the since the end of the war, but some people are speculating that perhaps Trump and some of the people in that circle are hoping that they can pull North Korea from China's orbit into Washington's orbit. Um, and you know, Trump has been promising North Korea lots of aid, lots of economic support if they make a deal. He told them he's going to make them as rich as South Korea. And, um, but I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, to, to judge what's going to happen in the long term, but certainly, certainly people here are, are getting a little more optimistic and certainly China is, is going to want to, you know, stabilize the situation so they can kind of put pressure on Seoul to put pressure on Washington to perhaps downsize troop sizes, uh, in the peninsula, or things of that sort. So we'll see. I'm going to throw something controversial out here. <clears throat> I'm looking at uh, you know a previous unification of two countries that were split in West Germany, for instance, um, both as a result of the World War II. And so the unification of Germany uh, to basically transform Germany into the premier economic uh, powerhouse uh, in the Western Hemisphere besides the United States and certainly the engine of the uh, largest common market in the world, which is the European Union, which is the largest uh, common market in terms of total um, G GDP, I believe. So, so North Korea, South Korea, the, the, the unification of the Korean Peninsula, um, Korea as an economic powerhouse in 10 or 20 years. So is this not could this be viewed as a threat to uh, Japan in terms of uh, its market share and the things that it wants, or could it be viewed as a as a benefit for Japan in terms of a you know a trading partner, a uh, bigger trading partner with Japan? Is there any rivalry? Is what I'm saying, Dan? Is there any? Do, do you well, sense any I, I, rivalry I, there? Yes, but not necessarily economic per se. But I think. Um, Japan is Korea's old colonial master. You know, they're colonial overlords, and Koreans are very sensitive on that issue still. And Japan, uh, for example, this recent round of, of talks in the summit, Japan has not been particularly supportive of it. They, they are more in the hard-line attitude towards North Korea. I think, I can't, I don't know if there's any public statement to this effect, but I'm... I would agree with some of the some of my Korean colleagues who've mentioned that they think Japan, even more so than the United States, Japan wants a divided peninsula because they want to keep the Koreans separated and kind of politically and economically in an inferior position. Um, 
And, and China has, some people suggest that China wants that as well, or ha- has wanted that as well. Um, but as far as, as possible reunification goes, I don't think you're going to see any political reunification in the near future, even if a deal is met. You know, if we assume a, a reasonable deal is met, Washington signs off, Beijing signs off, I, I think you're just going to see, at least at this juncture, a lot of economic reunification, uh, financial and economic relations deepened, but I don't think you're going to see total political reunification because it would require one side or the other to give up power, and I don't see Seoul giving up <laughs> power to the Kim, you know, the Kim family. I don't think South Koreans would accept that, and I don't know that Kim and those around him are going to step down out of power in the near future. So I, I, I'm hesitant to say that there, that political reunification is possible anytime soon, but certainly I think if they can come to terms, if they can get a, a deal, and if Washington doesn't stick its nose in too much, that yeah, they could become kind of jointly a economic force in the region. That's certainly certainly what a lot of Koreans are thinking as well. Yeah, some people some people compared it to Pakistan, India. You know, it's essentially the same people, but sort of divided ideologically, uh, or you know, different. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, India, it's a religious issue is the main one of the main differences but certainly like they used to be one part of one country um, they do compete in certain areas but completely different systems um, uh, really in terms of social systems and stuff uh, but a lot of similarities though so that's an interesting comparison of Pakistan and India to North and South Korea but, um, but, but, but as I said to, to your yeah. point though I do think Japan Japan does want to keep Korea down I do think so yeah well look what so what's the so what's the number one what's the number one part of this uh deal that trump uh is seemingly wanting to broker here uh in singapore the number one demand is it uh it's it's a total elimination of of nuclear weapons from the korean peninsula so uh so if if that's if that's the demand and if that's the promise but what's that going to entail going forward? Is that going to mean, uh, you know, Iraq-style inspections for the foreseeable future to verify uh, that they have, you know, gotten rid of their nuclear weapons? And if that's the case, is that not open to kind of, you know, um, uh, abuse by the United States, as they have done in the past, or completely, you know, U-turning, another administration coming and U-turning on that agreement, as this administration has done with Iran, for instance. Um, but, you know, is, and what I'm saying is that even if they disarmed uh, or have been seen to disarm, that's by no means the end of the story in terms of this drama. We could see decades of this kind of, in some reports, you know, CNN floats out one of their, their turds, uh, in the punch bowl, uh, as they do, oh, intelligence or our sources say that, uh, you know, developing something in a secret underground lair somewhere in the mountains of North Korea. I can just see the reports like a few years from now that will just, again, stoke up the tensions again. Yeah, Legion of Doom kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's my understanding that Kim has said he also you know there's been the rhetoric at least of total denuclearization uh kim with some of his meetings with moon has said these things and moon has also himself insisted on that he doesn't want any deal that leaves uh that just kind of ignores denuclearization um but kim has said 
and reasonably so, he wants security guarantees. If he's going to give up these his weapons programs, he wants security guarantees from Washington, uh, especially after, as you mentioned, what's happened to Iraq, what's happened to Libya. Uh, he doesn't just want to, hey, take it on good faith, I'll give you give up my weapons, and then find himself being dragged behind a truck in, in the streets. Um, I, I do think... Pyongyang is in a safer situation, though, than some of the Middle Eastern countries, though, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Beijing will, uh, will not, I cannot see Beijing allowing military, direct military intervention in there. Um, they, they, they issued their own kind of red line to Trump, you know, last year when he was making noise. They said, you know, if North Korea attacks first, yes, we'll stand back and you can do what you've got to do. But if you attack first, we are not just going to take that line down. So I think uh, the, the Beijing's security guarantee as well kind of keeps Washington at bay should, you know, someone of a, of a, of a more ill nature comes into office and wants to actually go in there and overturn any deal. Um, also, Seoul, I, I think, would, would lobby heavily against that. So I, I do think he's in a safer position from that, from that aspect. Also... A lot of the Middle Eastern countries that got bombed or attacked, you know, that you have the Israeli lobby playing a huge role in that, and I don't think there's a necessarily a similar foreign lobby that's going to be pushing for that kind of uh, direct military conf- confrontation. I mean, you might have some of the usual uh, weapons companies who like to, you know, but they'll, you know, if a deal's made with North Korea, I'm sure they'll go find a new target to, to justify the Pentagon spending or, or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, then you do get to the question of how will things be verified? You know, what kind of timeline are we looking at here? Um, I, I don't know. I think I'm hoping after this, this next week we'll have a, a, a more clearer picture of what kind of things, what Kim is thinking, what Trump is thinking, and, and if, if either side is being entirely reasonable. I, I think the thing... The thing uh, uh, the biggest stakeholder in this story has to be the uh, United States military industrial complex and all the defense contractors that 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 form and who are profiting and you know making hay off of the Pacific theater. So uh, I think they're the biggest beneficiaries. The U.S. military itself um, it's a huge beneficiary. And strategically, there are those uh, in the establishment that maintain that this we have to. You know, being in the DMZ is absolutely paramount in terms of, uh, uh, you know, countering China's uh, influence and keeping China in check. That that idea has been alive uh, since the 1990s, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. When in the 90s, China was was the sort of main uh, emerging boogeyman in Washington uh, defense uh, planning and foreign policy circles. And of course, that 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 was the case up until 9/11. Uh, when it, things pivoted at that point back to to the middle east but uh so but what what I think Daniel is the danger here potentially is that there, trump de- trump desperately wants to and it's, and his party too but trump def- desperately wants to get something inked or at least on the desk uh in the run up to the midterm elections. This is hugely important for uh, the Republican Party. It's important for the White House because, uh, you know, if they if, if the Democrats take uh, hold of the Senate or Congress, then that's going to be a rough ride for this president uh, for the next, uh, you know, couple of years. So is is there a danger, is what I'm saying, is 
is there a danger that Trump will rush through with some kind of a, or does do do the deep state uh, operatives want want him to 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 put forward a weak deal? In other words, a rushed deal, a weak deal, something that will be easily taken apart, or it, it will have kind of red herrings already embedded in it for future to sort of keep this as a low intensity um, kind of conflict with intermittent shocks along the way, much like what we've seen with with Korea in the last many years. Um, in other words, no resolution really, and you know, taking people capitalizing on the political realities in America in order to maybe not not make this as good and as binding and as as constructive as it could be. Do you think? Do you think there's a risk there? Well, there's always that possibility, and and you do wonder if you'll, uh, you know, I was just thinking as you're you're mentioning this kind of scenario that you know, they could even go further, get, you know, get a, push him into making some kind of weak deal and then set him up for it to fail. Uh, and then, exactly. oh, look, he made the deal, it failed, you know, he, he, so that, you know, I'm sure they would love to do that. And I, I, this, in the side of the State Department, I don't know how much influence they'll have on kind of cut, you know, the terms of these deals. Um, Pompeo, again, to his credit, seems very uh, enthusiastic here, seems acting pretty much in, so far, again, not in other areas, but in this area seems to be acting in good faith. So, again, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, Trump's not an idiot. I mean, he's not, uh, he's, he's kind of, you know, he bumbles around from time to time, but I don't think he's he's going to sacrifice his reputation on a, a weak deal that he knows could be flipped against him you know real easily but yeah i do think he wants the win he, he needs the win he wants the win so that you know that again that could that could push him to make some mistakes it's possible I, I, you know but again i think he's got moon with working with him moon is very shrewd man uh he's not gonna you know he's, he's gonna work very hard not to let things go to waste um and i think the, the American media doesn't give Moon enough credit. They kind of ignore him. They're stuck in their very juvenile mindset of, of everything is about Trump and how can we want Trump to fail. We don't give a damn about the Koreans, what they want. We don't give a damn about Seoul, what it wants. We just want to see Trump fail. And in fact, to sort of get into the, the, the media issue here, one thing that has stuck out to me is not so much the, the deep state per se, because I don't know what what they can do at this point but certainly the media the deep state's friends in the media um, are very very uh, uh, eager to see trump fail uh, they they don't care about what the, whether there's peace or not they just want trump to fail so that they can you know have their little moral victory and and uh, virtue signal how they knew better than trump and trump's an idiot and look we told you so um they were really happy when he canceled the summit. You know, they, they CNN and, and and as you mentioned, the turds on CNN. They were really overjoyed that that they they thought the fa- had failed and they they had their way. But things are back on, and they're so a little frustrated about that. So I saw all these these ridiculous foreign policy experts out on uh, you know, as as I've mentioned on Boiler Room before. I get to see CNN almost every day, sadly, because it played all day so in my jealous. office. <laughs> So yeah. jealous. I, know. So, I miss I so miss CNN to, because yeah, it yeah. motivated yeah. me. CNN motivated me yeah. to, to to do a better job. Yeah. <laughs> so I get I, I get to see Barbara Starr and and uh, you know 
the fr- I know the Sunday Wire's good friend Barbara Starr, uh, Pentagon spokesman, uh, spokeswoman. You know uh, all these all these idiots they bring on, and Anderson Cooper and, and Chris Cuomo and stuff pontificating about how Trump doesn't know what he's doing and he's going to fail. And you know that this this whole narrative is is just there's no goodwill from the media about this issue. They cannot detach it from the person of Trump and. It's it's kind of insulting to me to see sit here in Korea and think that these people would rather see the Koreans continue to grind down in this in this status quo situation rather than see Trump get to claim some kind of victory. It's it's, it's really sad that that's how they view reality now is whether it's good for Trump or bad for Trump. And they're they're missing the real story. And the the real story is that North Korea wants. As I, I believe essentially, and once, and the South Koreans want better relations uh, between the North and the South. Traditionally, the United States has been the instigator in the middle, that is, is the wedge that has been keeping that from happening. And then it's so Kim Jong Un has put, has out trumped Trump in this story because he has pushed the nu- his nuclear. Uh, weapons development so far forward uh, that he is then in the position to negotiate. So he's got more chips on the table because of that. And so in terms of the art of the deal, Kim is dictating the terms uh, of the deal. So, so long as he remains ahead. Uh, and so what, and so, he, so he's out Trump, Trump. And so, and, and I think this is significant, Daniel, because this is like, uh, instead of the Western powers or instead of the United States dictating uh, th- how the pace of the game is going, uh, you have Eurasian or Asian uh, actors who are asserting themselves and asserting their rights, whatever you agree with nuclear weapons programs or not. Um, I personally don't think that one's national sovereignty it's certainly one way to guarantee that you're going to get a seat a real seat at the negotiation table not negotiations that are done remotely and then you just have to comply with them when someone else negotiates on your behalf but they're an actual you know state actor north korea in this situation um that's significant so they're dict in a way north korea is is kind of dictating uh, the terms uh, of the process of this. And I think this frustrates a lot of people in the United States, um, much like when Russia entered the Syrian war in October 2015. Um, then all of a sudden, Russia is dictating the pace uh, of events in the Middle East. Uh, and they're the main act, one of the main actors there. No longer is it the United States that has full spectrum dominance over the region and is you know running all round tables and all you know, t- uh, multilateral talks. No one, no one goes to Geneva anymore. It's seen as not significant in the Middle East. So in, in the, I see the potential of this happening, Daniel, in, in the Pacific Rim, whereby you know, it, uh, it's more important that, that what China uh, is, is saying across the table with Japan, with Korea, altogether. The United States is really just a kind of a gnat. It's uh, something they have to it's a tick they have to deal with that's embedded in the region. That's a huge, massive shift, maybe of how maybe affairs were viewed thirty years ago. So, and I think it, I think that trend's going to continue. What do you think? No, I agree. Uh, Kim certainly has has his. I, he's 
he has some cards to play. I mean, he's not in the total. He's not totally disadvantaged, and he knows that. And I think Trump recognizes that as well. That it, maybe he can't deal as a complete equal, but he he can he can throw some weight around. And Washington can't really do anything about that. Kind of has to accept that and deal with it realistically from that from that angle. And I think he he wanted. Before he got to do negotiations, he wanted that nuclear card because he's again he saw what happened in Libya, he saw what happened in Iraq, and he knows that you know you and I, I'm sure both. I, I don't like nuclear weapons. I think the world would be a much better place if all of every country was denuclearized uh, as far as nuclear weapons went. But the world being what it is, Kim, I mean that's that's the only way you can ensure yourself uh, some. You know, total security from the West, from the United States especially. So he got that card, and now he's going to play that card. And I think he's going to play it well. I mean, he, again, he seems to be fairly shrewd and, and recognize the situation. As far as Washington goes, though, again, there, there was a... I saw a news report a few, maybe one or two months ago, that Trump had wanted to remove... Started start removing troops from South Korea, but his chief of staff uh, Kelly had talked him out of it. So I do think Trump personally wants to kind of pull back a little bit from that area, but I don't know that the, the broader Washington consensus would ever allow that. Uh, the Pentagon and and the State Department and such they've got a lot invested in there in terms of trying to keep U.S. so-called superiority in the region and to you know quote unquote contain China. Um, so I think whatever Trump's personal feelings are about that, and I do think he, he he mentioned it during the campaign, and it's been mentioned. You know, he does want to pull out of there a little bit, but I don't know if it will be up if he will be the one to make that choice ultimately, or whether you know there will be some kind of deal, but. U.S. troops will still stay in South Korea to some extent or something like that. I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, I, th- I think with, with these with this kind of a situation, which is like potentially historic or, you know, a potential paradigm shift as it as it gets closer to the sort of, uh, you know, the zero hour, as it were, uh, when something is going to be inked or some policy change is going to be formalized, <clears throat> then you can see. Who is who has got their stakeholders on what side of this issue? And certainly, I can see in the media, which we can see in the political side, certainly, and we can see with uh, the neocons and so forth. You know, they they come out of their holes. Basically, those trolls sort of come out of their holes and start, you know, growling and making noise and threats and so forth. But in the media, it's interesting. Uh, I think who was who the name Daniel of the Korean official who visited? The White House recently, and it was photographed with Trump. It was a sort of a big photo uh, yeah, op. Kim Yong Chol, Kim Yong okay. Chol. So, so when that when that photo went out, Jim Shuto from CNN. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, you might have. I don't know. You might have sent me this tweet actually, Daniel. But so Jim Shuto, which is an Obama operative that was kind of you know parachuted into CNN. They're all government operatives, pretty much, of one description or another. But so he tweeted out just basically totally trashed that photo saying there's there's president trump with uh, the head of the gulag in north korea and who murdered x amount of people blah 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 so and and i looked at that and i thought that's a leading 
correspondent or leading analyst for the biggest news network in the United States who's coming out basically inciting, you know, trying to sub, submerge peace talks, you know, actively going out there on, on social media in a very negative way, hugely partisan way. But so I'm like, th- these guys actually, they actually want war. CNN, they, they're literally, uh, you know, pulling their hair out. The, the prospect of peace in North Korea, I mean, that's basically a whole month of programming stripped right out of CNN's lineup for a year. Of, you know, if you add up and, all the North yeah. Korean fear-mongering, if you take all that out, that, what are they yeah. going to replace that with? Yeah, that's been Christina Amanpour's shtick for a while, hasn't it? That North Korea uh, gulags and prison camps and etc etc they have a cnn special every yeah i think at least once or twice a year they have some cnn special on it so yeah yeah, (laughs) they they stand to lose at least uh you know to lose north korea as a punching bag um but again i think i don't know in shudo's case but i feel with a lot of those people on cnn that i saw you did have you know some people who are worried about losing some kind of investment uh in terms of media fear-mongering or in terms of perhaps they're connected to some someone in the, the military-industrial complex. But some of these these other guys, you know, Don Lemon and uh, Brian, our, our friend there, Brian, what's his, Stetler, Stoutler, um, these guys just, it's it, it's just pure, they, they view the, the thing purely through the prism of Trump. If it's good for Trump or bad for Trump, they don't care mm-hmm. about the rest of it they they have no they, they have what, what do they call it the trump derangement syndrome they have no ability to look at it objectively to detach it from yeah. trump's personality and just look is it good or bad as a policy or no it's we hate trump this is good for trump therefore we want it to fail and that's it's really that simple for some of them and it's kind of it's and, the, and they'll go to the point of trying to sabotage as you mentioned try to sabotage the summit just so they can see trump fail and they have don't care about what seoul wants what the korean people want that's irrelevant to them absolutely so, so what is that hey what Patrick, is that daniel is that- sorry before yeah, let me cut in for one moment here i just want to read this tweet that you mentioned in its entirety because it is oh yeah it's bananas so jim shudo tweets out at real donald trump is smiling next to a man who runs a gulag jailing some 200,000 North Koreans and who oversaw the sinking of a South Korean Navy ship killing 46 and, get ready for it, here comes the big one, the hacking of Sony North America. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it. That was was the most grievous offense did it, is, are they still blaming north korea for that i thought i thought they kind of had moved away from blaming north korea for that uh, well no obama oh that was the centerpiece of obama's foreign policy actually was standing up to the north korean hack of sony that was his big sort of um posturing uh at the end of his uh, term or towards the end of his term there no that that that's insane so daniel th- this is like kind of this bolshevik mentality uh in in the media in washington in the beltway uh, it, which is like what you were saying. I think you wrote about this a couple of years ago or last year. So it was, it's all about who is doing what to whom. In other words, forget about the context of reality in the world and uh, real, you know, real things that are going on and the real forces who are opposing each other. It's what that doesn't matter. Nothing matters. All that matters is 
who's doing what to whom in in kind of you know petty political petty political sense. Yeah, that's a kind of. I think it was from Lenin, in, in fact. Right. And again, the Republicans do it as well. To be fair, you know, Obama did this, therefore we have to oppose it, whether the policy is good or bad. Such as the Iran, the Iran deal. You know, that was the attitude they had about it. Exactly. Um, so, to be fair, you know, both both parties are are very very guilty of this. You know, very juvenile, immature way of, of acting in in terms of politics, especially foreign policy, where it has a lot bigger consequences. But again, I don't recall Shudo, uh, Jim Shudo, tweeting out when Trump met with uh, um, the, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's killed probably far, far more people than uh, Kim Jong-chol is alleged to have killed. So I, I don't remember um, Shudo, you know, tweeting out stuff like that when he, you know, met with Bibi Netanyahu, who's killing Palestinians all the time. So it's, again, it depend, it's very much based on the person and not the acts that the person is alleged to have committed. Yep, absolutely. Great point, you guys. All right, uh, we're getting pretty far into the show here, so let's move along. Let's transition to Trump-Russia. Thank you guys for the uh, North Korea update there. And what is going on with Trump-Russia? This has just been such an ongoing thing. Now, Daniel, you shared an article earlier today uh, called What Didn't Trump Know? When Didn't He Know It? I found that one really interesting. Uh, there's a lot going on there, but why all the secrecy here? I mean, it's uh, a lot coming out. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll link this on tonight's show page so people can check it out, but uh, this has to do with uh, Michael Flynn, Comey, and uh, it's just amazing to me that we're still getting all this Trump Russia stuff. Um, I also have a, a great article that uh, Max from the Boiler Room sent me earlier today. Um, uh, this one's over at Russia Insider. It's called "Letter from Moscow." Top Russians ask, "Who is driving the hostility towards Russia?" Uh, so a lot going on there. I'm I'm curious to get both you guys' take on this. After what is it, Patrick? Are we, are we two years into this now? Uh, yeah, this will be two years uh, in about a couple of weeks. Yeah, it'll be two years in. Exactly. And and there's still nothing. I mean, we've got, what, like five ongoing, concurrent investigations going on, and, and nothing of substance has been brought up yet. Actually, anything of substance is looking more at uh, the Clinton Foundation, the Obama administration, and British intelligence. I mean... Uh, all of the damning information is is pointing uh, in completely the opposite direction of what the mainstream media, uh, especially CNN and the the leftist factions of the mainstream media, would have us believe. Yeah, I'll let I'll let Daniel start on this one because uh, this when this ball of string sort of unwinds, it's uh, it's going to go to some very strange places. But uh, so so I mean, D- Daniel, what do you make of the, uh, the what do you make of the way the media is handling this story? Uh, because they're, the facts are clearly coming out, right, guys? Uh, the the the, re, the names and the agents, and you can see who are the middlemen. So, so how how is this? This is my first question. How do you how is the media managing this? Uh, the, the, this story is this something? Because clearly, both sides of the media, right and left, are definitely want to maintain anti-Russian uh, stance. So they don't want to let go 
of the Russian narrative because it, 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 our whole foreign policy is built around it. But there's a little bit of a partisan split because it's a Trump issue. Um, so, you know, I'll just hand that over to you, Dan. Like, uh, how's the media dealing with this right now? Well, I, I learned this week how much the media loves Trey Gowdy. Um, they, uh, but this, uh, the spy issue, for example, which which the, the Trey Gowdy reference goes with. I mean, they they are just mincing. Uh, you know, trying to hair split over what is a spy, what is an informant, what is a human, you know, resource or whatever the other term that that was used. <laughs> like they're just like, uh, you know, that anything so that they don't have to admit the Trump campaign was spied on. Which I think, if you put aside all the the lawyer talk and the the the, the different kind of uh, language meant to obscure what was really happening, the the fact is, we now know from the past, I guess, week or two that the Trump campaign was spied on by this, uh, what's his name, Halpert character, who is well-known, yes. yeah, CIA-connected individual. I guess I learned that he had similar involvement with spying on the Jimmy Carter uh, campaign. Yes, um, yes. Or yeah, so I know about somehow that. they acquired. Yeah, they, he was involved in getting documents or something from the Carter campaign, which helped Reagan. Uh, the, the Reagan campaign in the what was that in the early eighties or some sometime you know, before. Yeah, my that, was, that was that was nineteen eighty. That's I'll, I'll tell yeah. you about. That. But go ahead and yeah. finish, and I'll tell you yeah. about the. Yeah. I think looking at it broadly, uh, I think that the media has lost this their their narrative in terms of. Of they they have nothing. They have n- Mueller's been digging and tearing and and dragging everyone in front of you know his grand jury, and he's got nothing. Nobody has been charged with anything related to you know colluding, whatever that even means, colluding with Russia. You know he just dra- you know he's dragged in Paul Manafort, charged him for stuff he did years ago, some shady financial stuff. Got people like Papadopoulos and Flynn on some process crimes and. You know, this kind of stuff. But there's no, nobody has been charged with working with Russian intelligence to subvert the election, or no one from the Trump campaign has been found to have been involved in getting DNC emails or John Podesta's emails or any of this stuff. None of, there's nothing. There's nothing. And they've, they've gone with the fine comb over this Trump Tower meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and the, the Russian lawyer, and that looks like a complete setup. But even then, there's nothing. And again, everything that they bring up, CNN will spend weeks and weeks on some little thing, and then a few days later, it will come out that it was, again, nothing. And they've, they're have they really just grasping and grasping at anything, but after two years, they have nothing, and now, as the they've kind of... They've been going so at it now that the truth is starting to come out of what they did, what McCabe, what Comey, what John Brennan, Clapper, the rest of these guys did in trying to, what looks to me, it's like they, uh, you know, their attempts to actually set up the Trump campaign uh, by sending in this spy and, and, and other things. So uh, I, I don't know, I'll let you take it from there. But I, th- I think what the evidence what the evidence now shows is it's pretty clear beyond any reasonable doubt 
and I don't care how uh, my, how many windbags on um, CNN or NBC or or uh, you know uh, who's at Chuck Todd uh, on Sunday morning how how they want to spin this. The evidence is clear that the intelligence agencies uh, and the FBI were involved in initiating reports that Trump was somehow colluding with Russia. So we now know this. And the, the problem is this is not being reported very widely on huge uh, sections of the U.S. media, but Republicans know it, and uh, people and the Democrats, of course, should know it, but they're probably not wanting to uh, deal with it because it's too painful to look at. So basically, how, how, how I see this as how it started initially uh, was – Donald Trump, some of the things that he was saying early on and getting traction on, this this set off alarm bells uh, right across all the sort of deep st- deep state sections of all the various agencies, and of course the Obama administration, and it's t- very close ties uh, politically with uh, the CIA, with John Brennan, uh, with the Clappers of the world, and so forth, and members in the FBI, uh, in the politicization of the Department of Justice, which had been completed under Eric Holder. Uh, over you know six years uh, in power, so they they alarm bells went off. Okay, then Marco Rubio, uh, who is backed by Israeli billionaire Robert Singer, Paul Singer, I believe Paul Singer. Um, so Rubio's done this opposition research and compiled this, uh, started doing this, compiling this dossier on Trump, and this was this was under the assumption that Rubio had a shot, and a lot of people believed he did have a serious shot as a contender for the Republican nomination. I'm talking about, you know, in January and February uh, when he was making a little bit of headway in the debate. So when Rubio and the others fell to the wayside and Trump wins the nomination, this this document gets resold or passed over to the Clinton campaign. Uh, and, and through via Fusion GPS, which is a private intelligence firm, which... Uh, gets paid to dig up dirt and do dirty deeds. Uh, and so we all know about Fusion GPS. And then somehow uh, Christopher Steele, British uh, uh, intelligence asset, ex-retired, they said, MI5. Uh, and so he's brought into the picture to, and then through the British network of Orbis, uh, which is similar private intelligence Agency, so this is kind of like you could say this is outsourced. This operation of compiling this dodgy dossier was outsourced to the British uh, uh, gang there, headed by you have people like uh, head of British intelligence, uh, uh, believe Richard Dearlove. You have, of course, Christopher Steele. You have Robert Hannigan, former director of GCHQ. Uh, then you have Alexander Downer. Australian diplomat who's clearly connected. <laughs> then you have Andrew Wood, ex-British ambassador to Moscow, Joseph Mifsud, uh, a, so, a Maltese academic posing as Russian connected, but was actually British connected. And then you got Clapper and Brennan in there uh, in the picture. So it, it, so all of a sudden this, this thing makes its way back, circles back to the United States uh, in the hand of John McCain uh, to give it the official stamp of approval and McCain was hoping to you know use that to blackmail Trump to stand down and basically you know resign as it were I don't know what these people were thinking but anyway uh, we now find out that this dossier is completely bogus Uh, there's nothing in it it was it was made up uh, and you can see what's really gone on here 
And so then the Papadopoulos story emerges in the last couple of weeks. Now you can see where the talking point was inserted. Uh, so then we have Stefan Halper, British uh, asset, basically embedded in the United States for years. Uh, so, so we can see how this happened. So this, so Papadopoulos, a Trump aide, was lured over to Europe to this conference uh, run by uh, Stefan Halper, who is a, a big-time operative in the Pentagon, who's British, by the way, and as you, as you pointed out, Daniel, has been in the U.S. Uh, uh, deep state system there for a number of years. So he, he was an aide to Richard Nixon. Uh, his father-in-law is Ray Klein, former deputy director of the CIA back during those Bush years. Uh, and so part of the Bush senior crew, he's 73 years old, uh, so so he was inserted into the Carter campaign, uh, Jimmy Carter campaign, to extract intelligence for the Reagan campaign. And so you have to, you have to understand Stefan Halper has massive CIA pedigree now in terms of, so th- and what did he do? For the Reagan administration, they said it was to out the moderates or to uh, get rid of James Baker out of the Reagan administration. All this, so what what they were doing was basically finding ways to basically make sure Jimmy Carter does not get reelected, basically. And so the idea was that you know this would sort of benefit the, the George Bush senior crew. So this is Halper. He's been in this game forever. So he's been inserted into presidential campaigns in the past. And by the way, a Trump he was pushed to join the Trump administration. So Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, recommended in the summer that Trump appoint Halper in a senior role in the administration. Uh, no, this was this past summer. And such as ambassador to China, for instance. So this is a big-time operative, okay, who's in an FBI informant, the FBI using him as an informant, so he's been implanted in the Trump campaign or around the Trump campaign, lured Trump advisors and operatives uh, to to England for this conference on intelligence and security, where Madeleine Albright was there. Papadopoulos is drunk in a bar, uh, or it was told by uh, this other operative, Mifsud, that uh, the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton. Okay, so they've got the, this. And so Papadopoulos according to his wife and others, thought he, they were talking about the 30,000 emails that were missing from Hillary's server. And so he went, so that, w- so that was implanted to him by this one other associate in this British gang. And so he went and was in a bar in London, I guess, a wine bar, and was drunk and sort of blabbed this to, uh, uh, I think it's Andrew Downer, uh, Australian uh, diplomat, and uh, yeah, Alexander Downer. And so he blabs this, and so we're told uh, that Downer then blabs it to uh, the Australian government, who then tips off the FBI, which triggers a meeting in Rome, I think. Uh, so you can kind of see, so this this talking point that, that Putin has hacked or has emails of Clinton uh, and is holding this as, uh, you know, dirt against the Clinton campaign and that Trump's basically involved in this somehow, this came via that sort of scene and circled back to the FBI as intelligence, and that initiated the Trump-Russia probe in July 2016. So it's based on, on it was inserted intentionally. And so, by the way, after Papadopoulos uh, basically 
had done this and this had sort of made its way and was through the intelligence uh, circles and into the FBI. Uh, the, the, the middleman was Israeli. A lot of people don't know this. So how, how did this happen? So uh, a friend, uh, so a friend in the Israeli embassy uh, put Papadopoulos in touch with a friend in the Australian embassy who then introduced him to Downer, who took this information of the Russian Putin has the Clinton's emails and moved that forward. Okay, so there was an Israeli middle person. I don't have the name of this person uh, at the moment, but this is in an article by Daniel Lazar and Consortium News. And so, <clears throat> so there you have even Israel's in the mix, in the middle, quietly playing, playing the sort of middle person. But, uh, this is outrageous. You know, you have a, a, a clear operative here who's got a track record who they didn't want to unmask and who the media were, were saying, uh, I think it was Senator Warner uh, from Virginia, who, by the way, is the one who engineered this Russian bot, Facebook bot story. That's Senator Warner, Mark Warner. So he basically threatened his own colleagues with prosecution if they, if they exposed the identity of this informant. Who, who everybody in the press knew was Stefan Halper, who they could tell, you know, the academic, and they described to everyone knew who it was. Um, but so he's there's clearly there's a dirty game being played here, obviously, uh, and the media tried hell for leather to cover it up or to somehow keep this from coming out, and eventually it's come out. So you can see how the, the, this operation taking shape now. It seems to me, guys, like the, the American deep state outsourced a lot of the dirty work over to Team Britain, and Team Britain did did their did their thing, and used that to send back pipe back to the U.S. and it kind of gave it some validation uh, within the U.S. intelligence community and the sort of the partisan deep state, where oh you know how could all of this be wrong? You know this is clear intel, and look how many people are talking about it and know about it. It must be a big story. Turns out it's a nothing burger. It's a nothing burger. <laughs> So I, I I don't know I'm gonna that that that's my synopsis of of this latest bit, um, but uh, you know it's uh, clearly the the intelligence community is involved. Mike, you know you have people like Michael Morell coming out and being really kind of assertive, and you know they're all backing Clinton. By the way, Hillary Clinton in the run up uh, to the election, but in the same way how Halper's father in law. Ray Klein, former CIA deputy director, he was hugely backing Bush Senior as the pres- as the presumptive. You know, this is what America needs. So these, in in both cases, Clinton was the CIA's candidate. Clearly, okay, John Brennan, true believer, total acolyte to to Clinton and Obama. Um, so Morell, Brennan, they're all they're uh, Clapper. They're all in the tank for Hillary. Uh, needs to happen. It's a. Ne- it's in fact they say it's a. It's an issue of national security, and so if, if this if the deep state community in the U.S. views Donald Trump as really views him as a threat to national security, then it becomes a jihad. It's not just a political thing. It, it, for them, it is the resistance and all this. It's really a jihad. It's a political jihad, and we saw the similar things with with Reagan. And Bush Sr. competing in 1980 and eventually gave way to Reagan, uh, who became a two-term president. But Bush eventually got his, um, got into office. 
1988. So, um, but, but there's a lot of similar uh, par- parallels here, guys, and and some similar uh, operatives. Stefan Halper, for one, involved in both processes. So, uh, 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 to me, there's a lot of evidence pointing here. There is a deep state. I'm afraid to, to break it to people. There is a deep state, and here's evidence of it right here in front of us. It's perfect evidence, and I think that the the media is highly culpable in this. I mean, this is a perfect example of how outlets like The Post and The New York Times play into all this because, I mean, what you've just laid out there and, and, and what these articles and, – and, yeah, I'll, I'll link these articles and, so people can check them out too. Go ahead, Daniel. Say and BuzzFeed. Uh, remember, they published the dossier. Oh yeah, let's not forget BuzzFeed. Definitely. I mean, it, it's pointed out in in one of these articles on this that there anyone is a Google search away from from knowing the history on this guy, and they're saying, oh, we can't reveal our source. We have to keep his identity safe you know is oh it's just our general policy well well no it's a known intelligence operative who's been colluding with media and intelligence to do uh election rigging essentially yeah well well i mean we i'm it's it's it is a it i'm trying to get my thoughts together the the collusion that actually happened in the 2016 election was not between trump and putin it was not between the Trump campaign and anyone in Russia. Uh, it was between the American intelligence agencies, the Democratic Party, the Hillary campaign, the media, and now, very clearly, the British intelligence agencies. That's your collusion. Those are the parties who were colluding together to interfere and subvert the elections in 2016. Those are your guilty parties. Absolutely. So, just a couple more points here on this. I want to read here. Um, A letter written by Trump's lawyers to special counsel Mueller and leaked over the weekend to the Times has revealed that the Justice Department refused to give a direct answer about whether Flynn was indeed under investigation at the time. According to the letter, a private meeting between Trump's personal lawyer and then-acting Attorney General Sally Yates back in January of 2017, went down like this. Quote, Among the issues discussed was whether dismissal of Flynn by the president would compromise any ongoing investigations. Yates was unwilling to confirm or deny that there was an ongoing investigation, but did indicate that the DOJ would not object to the White House taking action against Flynn. So, therefore, Trump's lawyers argue there could not possibly have been intent to obstruct an investigation that had been neither confirmed nor denied to the White House counsel, and they had every reason to assume was not ongoing. So, here we've got uh, Comey, Yates, Clapper, all failing to notify Trump that Flynn was under investigation, uh, which seems particularly egregious since we know that Flynn was one of the targets of the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into this Trump-Russia collusion thing, you know, going all the way back to summer of 2016. Uh, You know, so, again, (laughs) what didn't Trump know? He didn't know 
that there was this investigation going on. And uh, those, you know, Comey, Yates, Clapper, they had every opportunity to tell him and his lawyers, and it was just, it didn't happen. So there's just more uh, more factoids underlining the, the collusion that we're seeing here. And it's not Trump, <laughs> Russia. Not only that, I'll add to that, that uh, the, the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, they hired um uh I, I, well, let me see uh, i think it was june june 2016 okay uh fusion gps uh empl- was employed by the dnc at that point so that's when i was telling you when this this document went from rubio to the democrats basically so it got passed on and expanded and then they hired steel uh, who took you know got all, was supposed to get all the Russian dirt so this so you've got you've got the Clinton campaign the Democratic National Committee uh, a, a dodgy private you know dirt digging intelligence firm Fusion GPS um, you know, this, this is the Democratic National Committee this isn't just a campaign um, this is crazy this, so the level of corruption here and and, and and you said, you know, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is NBC International. A lot of people don't know that. It's 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 made to look like a alternative media or alternative to the mainstream. It's NBC International. They plowed, I don't know, a couple hundred million into that thing. I don't know where all the money's gone. But anyway, they've so and then CNN was the person that amplified that. It was Jim Shudo and Evan Perez who came on and like Jake giddy Tapper. little te- yeah. and Jake Tapper, yeah, like giddy little teenagers. Remember when they announced that? that oh, we have this is a groundbreaking story. So see, those CNN operatives, and they are operatives. They were totally involved in this fraud. Okay, so they're the, so BuzzFeed. The reason they use BuzzFeed because it makes it look like it comes from the grassroots. That's the whole point of the Vice of creating things like Vice, where Fox, Rupert Murdoch, you know, seed funded uh, Vice. They got seed funding from other mainstream outlets as well um but so buzzfeed as well uh the daily beast is another one that was that's barry diller founder of fox news so these are all meant to look like alter so they've aped the alternative media over the last sort of 10 years created these uh independent looking news organizations to sort of break these you know great salacious stories right but this it's total fraud there's nothing there was nothing in this dossier but it was laundered carefully through the different media outlets and then on to CNN uh, and then then it was quickly kind of discredited and flagged but the, by that time the, the the resistance had been had clutched it like you know like a blanket you know like Linus's blanket the resistance won't let go of this dossier because it's their, it's one of their last hopes that you know maybe there's something in there that's true and then they can use that to or they just love leaving it out there to discredit uh uh, the 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 trump presidency in other words it's illegitimate presidency because russia was involved in electing this president and that's the basis of the whole plot this is this is the whole uh raison uh detre of the of, of the of the democratic party the left the Clintons, the deep state, the Brennan, and 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 the never Trumpers, including the McCain's and the Lindsey Graham's of the world. It's not just a Democrat issue, uh, is it, Daniel? Well, uh, yeah, the the never Trumpers include a lot of old neocons, David Frum and uh, Andrew Sullivan, and, and a lot of these guys who 
are constantly, you know, uh, re being retweeted by the resistance. So the the resistance liberals have come to embrace these never Trump neocons, and they kind of feed each other back and forth with this this Russia nonsense. So they've been cultivating this. They've been cultivating this for two years. Think of all the Senate hearings, the congressional hearings, or this, the you know the. The, the whole drama that we've seen go on television uh, earlier this year and before that, and it's just endless. They haven't come up with anything. And then when they want to stop this and, and wrap it up and put a close to it, then all of a sudden the resistance starts screaming, "Oh, this is a you know this, this is a against due process and they're uh, impeding justice and you know which we're almost about to get some evidence." And then they want to you know it's been two years. Come on, guys. If there was any Adam, evidence, Adam, yeah. Yeah. CNN still rolls Adam Schiff out every you know every other day to s- scream and squawk about this. So uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the Republicans they're not letting us investigate it. Devin Nunes and blah blah blah, and that they have that uh, uh, Schiff and, and they have a couple of these very kooky. Uh, they seem to be mostly from California, but these very kooky Democrat congressmen who just love to get on CNN and MSNBC and and some of these other outlets and just repeat ad nauseum this this ridiculous uh trump russia stuff even though it's been totally uh, um disproven and and such but they just keep they keep at it and cnn is all too happy to give them the airtime and every time there's some hearing i you know warner and schiff and all these guys just keeping it going keeping it going destroying lives too i mean let's be clear this is not just something it's not just trump i mean these guys like flynn and and carter page and you know whatever you know whatever they may have been they they had their personal lives destroyed they've had their bank accounts you know drained to the point of bankruptcy flynn had to plead guilty essentially because he was going to lose his house um you know this this mueller investigation is dragging these people and and trying to break them to to plead to all kinds of, of things that are again unrelated to russia but everyone is 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 kind of forgetting that and um the one thing i did want to mention though as an somewhat as an aside but but still very much related to this was to get back to to papadopoulos which is uh i wish there was some kind of shorthand for his name at this point but he uh, according to his wife um and the daily caller had an article about this um According to his wife, he only pleaded guilty. He pleaded guilty to lying. He pleaded guilty uh, because Mueller threatened to charge him with something related to being an agent for Israel, an Israeli agent. And that caught my attention, but Daily Caller didn't seem to pick up on it, just sort of let it hang there and move on without any follow-up. So I, I was very... I know you also caught that, Patrick, in the article, so I was kind of curious what, what to make of that. Well, I'm, that was real. I'm really curious about that. I mean, that's a hell of a thing to throw out in a headline and then not actually explain it in the article. I'm I'm totally dumbfounded by that. I haven't uh, written them to ask for some clarification. I'm not sure if if that's an authored article or if it's it's under the just the Daily Caller General. It's, it's Chuck Chuck Ross of the Daily Caller. But I checked his Twitter and he didn't have any follow up on that. So I, I also had considered messaging him to see if he could explain what the deal with that is but i hadn't gotten around to it so i don't maybe you have a little more clout with someone like that than i do but 
I don't know. I, I, feel, I, w- I would get in touch with them and, and find out because it's it, they've drifted it out there, Daniel. That's kind of a big thing to drift out uh, without following up. But you know, it's sort of, it, you know, it, you mentioned this. Uh, there's this this character named Clovis. Okay, uh, what's his position exactly, Daniel, in the campaign? He, well, he was or, some, one of Trump's. Yeah, one of some guys in the Trump campaign. Uh, I, I can't remember if he was a chairman or vice chairman or some some you know someone. Yeah reasonably well up and i know uh he was interviewed uh fairly recently by laura ingram on her show alongside uh i think it was was either him or tucker one of the one of those characters on fox news interviewed him and he mentioned that he too had been approached uh by the, the the cia agent in in the u.s though not in london not in like papadopoulos and carter had been outside of the country and he mentioned at the time he didn't think much of it because, you know, who would? But, you know, in hindsight, it was, he said it was kind of, you know, now that he knew what was, what, what Halpert's deal was and what the situation was, is kind of disconcerting a little bit. And I guess he had been emailed a few times by him, but he didn't, you know, after the election, didn't really follow up on it. But it just shows the kind of probing that was done. And I also saw, actually right before we started talking now uh today that um another clint excuse me another trump uh advisor steve what's his name stephen miller had been contacted and invited to go to this same conference that papadopoulos and uh carter page had similarly been uh at and approached at Yes, and so, and luckily for Miller, he didn't. Uh, he's a former, uh, uh, I believe, um, Senate staffer for Jeff Sessions, uh, and, and and Miller was hugely influential in crafting uh, a lot of uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy messaging and and all this. So he didn't go. Luck, lucky for him, Daniel. Yeah, uh, yeah he he's the hard line. Yeah, he, he didn't. He didn't go. But <laughs> but so so Clovis. So the Federalist. Uh, I'm 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 going from Daniel Lazar's uh, excellent report, which which was at Consortium News. Uh, in the Federalist, speculated that Halper uh, Halper was working with Steele to flesh out a September 14th memo, claiming that Russian the Russians do have further compromise or compromising uh, you know material on Clinton in emails uh, specifically, uh, and and they're considering disseminating it. So. Clovis believes in this, according to this uh, Federalist article, that Halper was trying to create an audit trail back to those Clinton emails from someone in the campaign, okay, so that they could develop a stronger case for probable cause to continue to issue warrants and further investigate the Trump campaign for Russia collusion. I think that's spot on. That, to me, looks very plausible right there that they so all of this was wasn't to you know it wasn't about creating fake evidence or anything like that it was to initiate an fbi investigation that would run for two years um against trump well initially just to get him you know that he doesn't win the presidency uh the in the coming november election but beyond that it's extended now the whole process we're two years in and so this was initiated by this sort of fake piece of information and pop pop we'll call him pops and pops was the vehicle 
for this. Uh, the the unknowing uh, sort of person used uh, to sort of initiate this process. So he was the Trump uh, campaign person who was then you know tarred with this information, which then made it through the rounds and back to the FBI. And so, and then to keep the issuing the warrants, and this brings us, you guys, to the FISA warrants, okay, that were issued for surveillance against, you know, the Trump campaign or indirect surveillance or whatever you want to call it, whatever yeah, CNN Carter, or Carter, right? Carter yeah, Page, ahead. right? Carter Page, spying on Carter Page, yeah, yeah. So you can see the story coming together now. Um, it's pretty clear there's a story here. I mean, this wouldn't this be? This is much clearer and more cohesive at the moment, I think, than even Watergate was uh, in even the late stages of that investigation. Um, this, there's plenty. There's plenty here. There's a whole story here. So, so why why is this not going to go the distance? What's going to happen to the story now, in your opinion, guys? If, if I had to guess, I think that the Democrats are hoping to keep it going just long enough for the midterm elections hoping it will give them some traction to take back the House. And after that, if if it looks like they can use the Mueller stuff, if Mueller releases his report and it uh, gives, you know, gives them something that they can use against Trump, they might try for impeachment. If it totally continues to blow up like it's doing, I think after midterms they'll try to bury it entirely. Yeah, I think, How about you, Hesh? I think you're right there, Daniel. Uh, midterm elections, if they can just keep resuscitating this dead horse of a story through midterm elections, uh, you know, maybe maybe they think it, it will help them uh, gain the House back. Um, or, you know, maybe even, I think it's a long shot. I think the impeachment thing is a real long shot considering everything that has unraveled in here i mean so much has unraveled in their faces it's uh it's staggering to me that they're still kicking the dead horse here but yeah i think midterm elections are 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 a big a big goal right now so i think that's probably what what they're focused on and i believe this is going to be a case of if we repeat the lie often enough and loudly enough um, enough people are gonna believe it out there, I mean, if if you look at uh, Jim Jim Shudo's, uh tweets, he's got uh, seven thousand three hundred twenty three repeat uh, retweets and almost twelve thousand likes on on this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's it's big time, and you know, will it be enough to impeach? I really doubt it. I don't see how any of this can hold up, or why they would want to even take it into uh that process because it, it's just so full of holes so i i think uh yeah they're gonna keep they're gonna keep hammering at it at least until uh, we get through the midterm elections but i'll be surprised if if they actually try to get an impeachment over this yeah and also the the other thing to remember is the the so-called resistance which which pat referred to earlier that's big business now for the Democrats. I mean, that's that's a lucrative business. That's ratings. That's money. That's so. I mean, Trump Russia among the liberal base that sells. I mean, that's that's making a lot of people very rich. Oh yeah, that's keeping people. There's whole. There's whole. There's a whole section of media and journalism that has basically grown out of this concept of the resistance. Right? How many careers have been made? Uh, from this crisis, what supposed crisis? I mean, 
characters like Luis Mensch and, and Eric Garland and stuff, uh, Seth Abrams and these guys get on t- have gotten good media gigs because of this thing. I mean, they're a bunch of idiotic nobodies, but they 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 were smart enough to to jump on this and and make money off it. So yeah, there's a lot of that out there. Yeah. So so if anyone's going to get impeached, okay, if there's a clear p- case of impeachment of any particular public official, and of course. It, you know, better late than never, as one might say. It has to be John McCain in this story. And, you know, what a great way to, you know, wrap up the analysis, but to have a good whack at John McCain. Uh, and it's because he does deserve it, by the way. So this is from Daniel Lazar's article here. And so he's saying that, uh, nonetheless, this is the spooks of spooking themselves. Nonetheless, the spooks. Uh, have made the most of the pseudo-evidence. So, dear love, UK, a UK intelligence head, uh, would uh, they both advise Christopher Steele to take his findings to the FBI while after the election, uh, Wood pulled Senator John McCain aside at a security conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia to let him know that the Russians might, have, might be blackmailing the president-elect Donald Trump. Okay, and so then McCain dispatched his longtime aide, David Kramer, to the UK to discuss the dossier with Steele directly. Although Kramer denies it, the New Yorker found uh, the former security official who says he spoke with uh, Kramer at the time. The Kramer's goal was to have John McCain, listen to this, the goal was to have John McCain confront Trump with the dossier in the hope that he would resign on the spot. <laughs> And yeah, no kidding. And then when that when I know <laughs> when imagine, can you imagine the scene? Can you just imagine I'm little little John McC- <laughs> little John McCain? That's funny. I had I hadn't heard that part. That's that's funny. So little little five foot seven John McCain confronting six foot four six three Trump with the with the steel dossier saying you must resign now. I've got the dirt on you. So when that didn't happen. This is where this is where this is where the story becomes it's tied up. This is a slam dunk right here. When that didn't happen, that whole process, Clapper and Brennan, Clapper and Brennan arranged for the FBI director James Comey later testified it's on record that he didn't want Trump to think he was creating a J. Edgar Hoover style situation. <laughs> I didn't want him thinking I was briefing him uh, on this to sort of hang it over his head in some way. But that's exactly what it was. It was totally a J. Edgar Hoover move, uh, the, the FBI's involvement. But everyone's running for cover, trying to deny or pass the blame off on somebody else. The story is clear. It can't be any clearer than it is right now. This was a massive, this is a real conspiracy. This is a conspiracy that, that goes from the FBI to the CIA uh, to all of these, you know, Fusion GPS to the DNC to the White House. With, and with many senators, including McCain, on both sides of the aisle, Warner, McCain. Talk about a conspiracy. It, it's almost too big to, to, for people to maybe get their heads around that they're not going to be able to focus on a specific target. That is. Is, that's maybe the biggest problem now with this story is it is so diluted. It's such a it's such an obvious and big conspiracy. It's almost impossible to grab hold of to grab hold of anything in particular that you could use to sort of you know bring closure to this. Um, that I, I, it's going to be it's this is hard. This is going to be hard for them to 
to to grab hold of some aspect of it that they could nail somebody or something with this. These stories the don't normally, that, yeah, they don't normally get resolved. These types of scandals, well, do they? The, I say the other thing that to keep in mind is that the thing the media flipped out over is that the, uh, the at the DOJ, the Inspector General was assigned fairly recently to actually look into this and, and check if the FBI acted inappropriately. So their own guy, I don't know how honest he is or how objective he's going to be in the end, but you know the the, the I sure know the CNN was very. Uh, concerned that someone had been assigned to investigate it within their they on the DOJ as yeah. if we don't nope. have enough investigations going already yeah yeah and it's going to well, political yeah, yeah. go ahead well the, the the inspector general's the same one he's supposed to come out with a report about the FBI's um their handling of the Clinton email investig a server investigation and i guess if the preliminary, the preliminary reports are any indication, it's not looking good for the FBI leadership. Uh, and already McCabe has, has he's been called by Grassley to to do uh, to, to come before the this, one of those Senate committees, and he's asking for immunity. So I don't know. So there's a lot of people seem kind of nervous in that circle there. Clapper and Brennan are try, you know trying to manage the narrative over there on CNN. Because they're you know they're worried that their role is becoming more and more apparent. So uh, people keep saying it. I don't know if it's true. I hope it is. But there is this that somebody like Brennan might end up in jail over this. I'm I hope so. I'm not holding out my hopes, but <laughs> I'm not holding out my hopes. But uh, it would be nice to see at least some of these guys face justice for what they did. Absolutely, I'd love to see Tinker Bell. Uh, go down uh, in, uh, with a prison sentence over this. That would be great to see Brendan in, inside. So, so clearly, guys, it's pretty obvious. The the the, the Trump has been <laughs> like I'm I'm not uh, advocating or not a big fan of Trump on so many levels, but he's been blackmailed, uh, and so the White House has essentially been he's been blackmailed with this uh, with this dodgy whole dossier whole sort of storm the white house has been absolutely painted into a corner in terms of the russia issue because of this so it's, this is fairly obvious and so and that's, and now i i think the final the final role for cnn and uh these sort of pentagon uh deep state media outlets um they're now re-spinning it basically saying that uh the dossier may actually have been Russian disinformation designed to uh, throw everyone else off base, Republicans and Democrats alike. You know, so it's like Putin sowing confusion. So yeah, so the, is that? I think I think Daniel, that's the last spin. That's the last really decent spin they can probably throw on this. Was and, and that kind us. of yeah. yeah? Doesn't that kind of isn't that a get out of jail card for? Is maybe for the for the CNNs of the world? No, yeah, they'll never they'll never hold themselves accountable. They'll never have any introspection over this. They'll just, like you said, come up with an excuse and hope after a few weeks that everyone forgets what they did. I hadn't heard that one yet, Patrick. But yeah, you're you're right. That's uh, what a doozy. What a simple. What a simple get out of jail card, but what a doozy at the same time. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> we'll just 
lean back on, lean right into what we've been leaning into the whole time. Uh, Russia did it. Yeah, blame it on Putin. Another genius, dastardly plan. And, and, and it, it preserves the meddling narrative, which is, well, they didn't collude and Trump didn't collude with Russia. Russia didn't hack anything, but they're still kind of meddling, sowing confusion by throwing out these this fake. You know, So they threw out a fake dossier to discredit Trump, which really didn't have any real information in it. But it sowed confusion between Democrats and caused general chaos in the U.S. system. And look at what the mess we've made. We've wasted all this money on the Senate hearings and it's all Putin's fault. It's all Putin's fault. So so they can, again, blame Russia at the end. So actually, that's kind of elegant, isn't it? It's kind of an elegant conclusion by the uh, spin masters at CNN. I have to give them some credit in their psychopathy. One of the other lines I've seen used recently from time to time is that, yeah, maybe Trump didn't do anything, but but why did he act guilty? You know, why does he (laughs) act guilty? You know, like... (laughs) The mere fact that he defends himself against these allegations and gets angry that he's accused, this, you know, maybe he didn't do anything, but he's so suspicious. Why, why, you know, why would he do that? They're going to yeah. spin it until the cows come home. It's just going to get spun and spun and spun. They're, they're never going to take responsibility for, for what they've done here. No, it's a travesty. It's a, the, the, all the, meat, the column inches that have been wasted, the hours of television panels, on MSNBC, all of them, uh, CNN, even Fox, NBC, all the outlets, all the New York Times headlines, all the articles. Imagine how many journalists have been writing about this, which is just, it's the whole, it's all based, the whole basis of it is this a fraudulent narrative. And so two years of fraud, uh, you know, it's like, you, oh gosh, it's, this is not good. This is really not good. Well, this I, this is this this is the stuff that gave us the Mueller investigation. Just the the hype and the media, the Dems just creating up all this and kind of browbeating Rod Rosenstein into to doing this because he you know felt that we couldn't be impartial and gave us this this joke of a of a special counsel. And so I guess my final question then for what you guys, well, how do you think the the Mueller thing's going to end? When and how? I guess. Um, I don't know. What, any thoughts on that, Hesher? I mean, I, I don't see it. I, I, I see it kind of like I agree with Daniel. It's going to carry on or, or with you, Hesher, as well. Uh, it's it's at least through the midterms, right? But maybe do you, do you, I think it could wrap up maybe next January, maybe. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's good. Um, you know, one, one would hope uh, or, or maybe the optimistic man would, would hope that uh, – Mueller should maybe shine his his light to the other side of the aisle, considering uh, what we know about the DNC's involvement in the dossier. At least that, uh, but you know the chances of that I think are are next to nil. So yeah, I, I'm hoping that we'll stop hearing about this somewhere around then, around January. I mean, if if we're having this conversation again. <laughs> In 2019, it's going to be a real disheartening conversation. I mean, it's already, I mean, Patrick, you said it brilliantly. Two years of fraud, two years of collusion uh, is is what we're talking about right now. Two years of wasted taxpayer money. Think about all the the, the DOD government and, and uh, uh, political White House 
paychecks that are going to people whose day-to-day life is is this fraud i mean it is just a it's it's it would be hard to calculate the amount of taxpayer money viewer time uh media money and time i mean it's just this giant vortex of fraud it's a that's political capital hesher all of all the things you just mentioned that's political capital and it's been expended, and it's gone down that vortex. It's gone down that black hole. And if it's based, if it's if it's based on a false premise, and this is what the resistance or the the so-called resistance and the Democratic uh, opponents and the Never Trumpers and they don't. If it's based on a false premise, then nothing good can actually come out of it. Nothing productive can come really to the opposition in in the long run if it's based on a false premise. It, it, all that political capital just goes into a black hole and you can't build anything from it. And like, like Daniel was talking about these journalists who've had these newfound careers as spokespeople for the resistance, quote unquote, um, if if, if, history will show eventually that this is a a pile of, of dung. And so they can't really build much on top of that. There's not a lot of productivity that can be made from that. Uh, And so, that that that's what I think um, is is a big a huge waste. It's it's not good for the American political system. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you if you don't have a healthy opposition uh, in politics or an opposition that's coming up with good some some good solutions or some programs that are going to make sense for for all Americans, then it's a really dark and bad time in America. And so this is what's happened. You don't. You need a healthy opposition. Whether the, the Democrats are in power, you need a healthy opposition, whatever that opposition is. If the Republicans are in power, you need a healthy opposition. It needs to happen. And right now, uh, they, they've put all of their chips on, on basically a fraud uh, for two years, and they haven't progressed at all. And this, this only means that the worst elements of the Republican right are going to fester in that environment. And, you know, and, you know, Trump very well may get reelected just out of the sort of abject failure of the Democratic Party to come up with anything but a celebrity for the next presidential election or Michelle Obama or whoever they whatever gimmick that they go for, uh, because they haven't been building the, the they haven't been doing the groundwork at all, which shocks me. That they, they should have been building and working and that all of this energy has gone into this, this, this yeah, they, Russia they, fantasy. Yeah, they, they spent all their money on the, you know, this the, the Trump Russia thing and ignored every other issue where they could actually do very well. You know, the health care stuff, uh, some of the foreign policy stuff where they could actually have done some pushback. And built up some, you know, some support and capital. But no, they just threw it all away. They let the Adam Schiffs and, and Mark Warners decide instead of the the more, I guess, pr- sane, progressive wing of the party, which has been shunned, which has been, you know, pushed pushed aside in favor of the. Let's face it, the hawks. I mean, the the, the hawkish part of the Democratic Party, and I think they're gonna it's not going to go well for them if that's how they're going to continue. I mean, Trump, again, he may not be that popular, but he just has to to withstand some of this stuff and he can just continue to coast on their failure, their, their divisiveness, their confusion and their, their fanaticism. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I noticed uh, Joe Loria told RT recently, he said, the Republicans and Democrats are ripping themselves apart amid the Russiagate distraction. And I think that's a very accurate way to put it. Yeah, I, it, it, that's, that is accurate. And it's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, we have to kind of see what we can salvage yeah. <laughs> from this, hopefully, in the next like year or two. But the, the bottom line, probably to leave, if I was to put a final point on this story, um, that it, that Russia wasn't meddling in the 2016 elections. They weren't colluding, meddling, hacking, or influencing. Um, if, if there's one government that was involved or one intelligence apparatus from one country that was really involved in all of this, it's Britain. It's the UK. And that says a lot about sort of the international deep state. Uh, and and the total cooperation between U.S. and British intelligence apparatuses, um, at least outsourced on the British side, obviously all these fake f- intelligence companies, but the same in the U.S. They, they have Fusion GPS and all these other consultancy firms and Pentagon think tanks where people like Stefan Halper employed uh, on the payroll, actually, like the Office of Net Assessment, which is where... Stefan Halper draws most of his income, which is an in-house Pentagon think tank. Okay, so that that to me is, is, you know, in a way, Britain has a huge amount of influence over the U.S. political system. And think about Halper, a British potential double agent, U.S. British double agent. A lot of people wouldn't think twice about that. Maybe a triple agent. I don't know what his ties to Israel are, um, but certainly he has some. Uh, so. So you have British intelligence really in influential positions in U.S. elections from Reagan uh, right forward to Trump. Um, those operatives are in there playing incredibly uh, important roles as men in the middle, uh, setting up some of the stuff that we're seeing here. So you want to talk about meddling and you know how free is the United States from its former colonial master uh, in that sense from the but I do think it's interesting all that with all the focus on Russia, a total igno- totally ignoring the, uh, the the British intelligence establishment's role in this whole story. It's incredible. Yeah, that's that's a really good point there, Patrick. Uh, there seems to be a common mis- misconception, uh, especially here in the United States, that that this you know nebulous amorphous term of deep state is is simply a faction that exists. Here in the United States, and uh, this Trump Russia case that we've unwound tonight is a perfect example of how the deep state is much, much bigger. It has many more tentacles than some people out there think. It it is uh, international, and multinational, and it is comprised of you know corporate intelligence, military, political. Uh, all sorts of different uh, tentacles that that reach all all over the world. You know, it's it's a much bigger monster than than something sitting in um, a swamp in D.C. No, definitely, definitely. That, that's the most important point to take away, without a doubt. All right, definitely. Well, hey, you guys, uh, let's wind down here. Anybody, uh, Daniel, you got any further uh, points you want to make or uh, anything else saved rounds for the boiler room tonight? Um, just uh, watch next week. I guess the Trump-Kim summit will be next week, so I guess we should all keep an eye on that and see how it goes. 
Good idea, definitely. And uh, let me know if you want to get back into the boiler room, or let us know if you want to get on Sunday Wire. Once that happens, we'll we'll hook it up. Yeah, yep. So that's something to look forward to. Keep an eye on the uh, the the coming summit. Who's going to pay for the hotel room of Kim Jong Un? By the way, I heard there was a bit of a controversy there. I, I heard maybe the U.S. will be paying for it. Too bad it couldn't have happened at the Trump golf course in Indonesia, or or maybe they should have had it at Sheldon's Casino in Macau. Well, I, I look at it this way. If all goes well, you'll be able to stay at the Trump Tower in Pyongyang in a few de- in another decade. <laughs> there you go. There you right. go. Yeah. I also noticed that uh, Dennis Rodman it might be present there. So there again, that, that supports nice. my, my Trump Rodman conspiracy <laughs> yeah. theory. D-Rod, D- he, he's, he's uh agent of peace in the world. Huh? That's right. That's right. He <laughs> he's come, a, he's he a secret bearing, weapon. Yeah, he comes bearing Xbox games. <laughs> yeah, love Rodman. He probably made this whole thing happen. I'll bet. I I have a I have a sneaky suspicion that uh, Rodman has been Trump's guy in this in this department since since uh, he had him on The Apprentice years ago. Oh God, you're right. He was on The Apprentice, wasn't he? Yeah. So they're connected. Yep. Oh my gosh, that's serious because Rodman and Kim are best buddies. Yep. That's that's no secret. <laughs> There's so long running the guy. there. He is the guy. Dennis Rodman is the guy. The story isn't Trump Russia. It's Trump Rodman. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't and, that amazing? And if, and if there is a deal, I think uh, Dennis Rodman will be, not Trump, but Dennis Rodman will be the one who deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm totally for that. I could get behind I'm that. T- yeah. I'm totally for that. Yeah. Take Obama's and give it to Rodman. Gosh, he's <laughs> earned it. All right, you guys. Well, hey, thanks for joining me for this special Boiler Room broadcast. Appreciate you guys, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Nice one. Thanks, Hesher. All right. That's Daniel Spaulding and Patrick Henningsen joining us for this very special broadcast of Boiler Room. The uh, show page and recording will be up uh, not as immediately as usual, but it'll be up very soon. So look forward to that. Check the show page for all your reference links and all that good stuff uh this is hesher for boiler room let's see let's see just to wrap up real quick is this a case of if trump russia is reported enough times will enough people believe it or is it time for the deep state and the mainstream media to give up on trump russia well i would argue that given everything we've learned that it's time to give it up Perhaps it's time for Mueller to turn his spotlight towards the DNC, towards Comey, Clapper, Brennan, Yates, Steele, McCain, Fusion GPS, British Intelligence, towards the mainstream media agents, producers, and newsroom managers. If we're to take the members of the Mueller investigation, the Senate investigation, the intelligence investigation, the House investigation... The FBI investigation, if we're to take any of these people seriously, isn't it time to shine a light at some of the names I mentioned? If not, well, isn't it time to accept that there really is a global deep state and its goal, at least with this story, is to disrupt or impeach the Trump presidency? All that time, all that taxpayer money, all that energy, two years of fraud 
totally wasted. Amazing, folks. All right. This is Hesher for Boiler Room and Alternate Current Radio signing out. We'll see you on Thursday for another episode of Boiler Room. Good night. Run home and cry to mama. Tune into the Sunday Wire. 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. UK. Live only on ACR and 21stCenturyWire.com. Tired of boring, stupid podcasts? I know I am. If you want something different, check out Jay's Analysis and Esoteric Hollywood only on the Alternate Current Radio Network. The biggest breakdowns of the biggest films, geopolitics, esoterica, and theology.